Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Picture yourself alone in the middle of nowhere and there's somebody following you. He went on his way, we so thought, and then we went on ours. But in reality, he really followed us up there. On Deadly Nightmares, the true crime podcast from ID, listen to real stories of ordinary people stalked by serial killers and attackers. <laughs> Please, tell me we're not going to die. Listen to Deadly Nightmares on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast explores themes of murder and rape. Listener discretion is advised. Why are all these murders here? Why? Well, one reason is that we have a homicidal maniac who's been running around and we know he's killed 10 people. Oh my gosh, you know, there's a serial killer going out there. He was slowly formulating through his plans of how to become a perfect killer. The remains were basically bones and a skull. From 1972 to 1973, locals in Santa Cruz, California, were terrorized by not one, but two serial killers. Their names were Edmund Kemper and Herbert Mullen. They operated independently and over an 11-month period claimed the lives of 21 individuals. Young children, teenagers, female hitchhikers, even a priest was slain. No one was safe. Faced with such brutality, investigators began to panic. How do you begin to make sense of such a blatant disregard for human life, let alone catch those responsible? I'm Dr. Michelle Ward, criminal psychologist with a special interest in violent predators. Over the course of six episodes, I'm going to speak to detectives, experts, and witnesses to unravel the shocking story. Along the way, I'll share exclusive audio tapes of the perpetrators and their families, recorded 50 years ago by renowned criminal psychiatrist Donald T. Lundy. Lundy was a legend in the field, and these tapes are like gold dust. I want to know why this happened. Two of America's most notorious killers in the same place at the same time? It's unimaginable. Was it the location? Was it the decade they were living in? There must be a reason, and I'm going to find out. This is Mind of a Monster, the co-ed killer and Herbert Mullen. Episode one, the killings begin. America in the 1970s is a country in flux. While Nixon is embroiled in the Watergate scandal and Ronald Reagan governs California, the anti-Vietnam War protesters clash with law enforcement, and second-wave feminism is just getting started. For the young, it's a world of change and opportunity, and nowhere is more exciting than University of California's coastal campus at Santa Cruz. 
It's a place of passion, politics, protests, and promise. But scratch the surface of this jewel of the Golden State, and there's a disturbing darkness. For over a decade, California has been trialing mental health care reforms, which had seen thousands of vulnerable people removed from state hospitals and left to fend for themselves. There's also a growing drug problem and simmering tensions between the locals and students. To understand how two serial killers could emerge in this tiny place at the same time, I really want to get under the skin of Santa Cruz and find out what the hell was going on. I start by speaking to Terry Medina, who'd become a detective at the Santa Cruz Sheriff's Office just two years before Kemper's and Mullen's murder sprees. I don't know how many times you've been asked to speak about this subject, but I imagine it's not a small number of times. So thank you. Quite a number. Quite a number. I mean, here you are, you have this badge, you're working on one of the most notorious cases of all time, which brings you, I imagine, some level of fame, at least locally, if not nationally, because everyone wants to understand why a serial killer does what he does, including myself, which is why I've spent so much of my life studying it. So it is very exciting for me to talk to you. Well, you know, it's always uh, the most difficult question is the why. You know, that's the one thing you don't have to prove uh, at trial, but you have to prove because juries want to know why. They want to make sense out of this stuff, and sometimes they don't make sense. It's not always satisfying. Sometimes it is, but usually it's not. In the cases that we're talking about today, the psychology of these people, the mindset, are completely and totally different which made this all uh, even more difficult. I mean, how confusing. What are the chances that you have two serial killers operating in the same city at the same time with just slightly different MOs, and you're tasked with disentangling all of it, figuring it out. You don't know it's two of them. It could be one. It could be three. I mean, it's really easy in hindsight, but it's so incredibly difficult in real time, I imagine. And then you just add in the normal uh, vanilla murder cases that you get every year. Born in Salinas, California on April 18, 1947, Herbert William Mullen was, for most of his young life, just like any other kid, from the outside at least. He enjoyed a stable home life and was even voted most likely to succeed by his high school classmates. Emerson Murray was born just a few months after Kemper and Mullen were arrested, growing up in a much-changed Santa Cruz following all of the murders. He has spent years researching what happened and is the author of Murder Capital of the World, which explores the crimes in detail. Mullen had sort of a strict father who was a uh, Marine Corps drill sergeant when he was younger, sort of a uh, leave-it-to-beaver kind of mother, you know, just 1950s kind of mom. And he graduated from high school in 1965, stayed around Santa Cruz. By the early 1970s is when he was sort of starting to show signs of mental disturbance and mental health issues. He had gone to San Francisco and lived in various areas in San Francisco, various homes, lived out of his car, and had a relationship with a young lady that broke up. He was experimenting sexually with his own homosexuality. He was taking a lot of drugs, a lot of LSD. I've talked to people that said they gave him like 10 tabs and they'd turn around and they would be gone. 
Edmund Emil Kemper III was born 18 months after Mullen on December 18, 1948 in Burbank, California. Like Mullen, Kemper's father was also a World War II veteran. Unlike Mullen, Kemper's home life was unstable from a very early age. He harbored a deep hatred of his mother, and he was shuttled from one place to the next, later claiming that his mother locked him in a basement. He killed family pets. And by the age of 15, he was in a mental institute. He was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. Then he was released at age 21. But psychiatrists advised that he not return to his mother. Emerson Murray, author of Murder Capital of the World. So he went to the CYA, which is California Youth Authority, and then he went to Atascadero, which is like a mental hospital for, really for adults, but he was only 15 years old. And at Atascadero, they said that under no circumstances should Kemper be released into the care of his mother because she was sort of the instigating factor in his life. Well, he was then transferred to the CYA, and the CYA released him and said, you will be under the care of your mother. He had odd jobs. He worked at gas stations and got a job with the uh, transit authority. And his job was to work on roads. Uh, he would drill a hole for them to fill in like in, uh, with a chemical for indentations in the roads. Terry Medina, detective at the Santa Cruz Sheriff's Office. Describe for me Santa Cruz, the Santa Cruz before the murders of Mullen and Kemper. What kind of place was it to live in, work in? What was the general ambiance of the town? Well, Dr. Ward, let me take you two steps back to the, the 50s and the very early 60s, uh, maybe even the late 40s. Santa Cruz was the very bucolic beach town uh, that thrived with tourists uh, three and a half months out of the year and was a very small, uh, uh, tight-knit community. You know, the Vietnam War is rolling. The University of California starts up. The community was like, I remember them being, oh, it's so happy that the university chose Santa Cruz. And uh, the established community was thinking about football games and basketball games and uh, young people getting degrees in business and, and staying and working in the community. And uh, the reality soon hit that the University of California at Santa Cruz was going to be none of that. It was founded on the Oxford system, which was uh, a series of very small little colleges within the university, all liberal arts and um, no sports. And it quickly became very different. And so the community and the university was not on the same page. The established community was thinking that this whole new group of hippies and people that have taken over church grounds in the mountains to, to make communes, that they were the fostering of all this problem. So tensions were already high in Santa Cruz at the time, between the old and the new. I need to know what it was like from a student's perspective at the time. So I speak to Luita Spangler, who'd begun studying at UCSC in 1971, just one year before the killings began. 
What was it like between the students and the locals at the time? You know, frankly, there was pretty much a division. Um, I think that the, the people who had lived in Santa Cruz for quite some time were somewhat resentful at this influx of uh, students. And the thing is, once you went to Santa Cruz for university, you didn't want to leave. And so we didn't. And, and that meant that housing became a real problem. Rent skyrocketed. That was problematic. It settled down after a while. The, um, you know, the old-time natives of Santa Cruz began to die out. We were replacing them. Mickey Alufi was also at the Santa Cruz Sheriff's Office. He was working alongside Terry Medina on these cases. Do you find you're asked about this a lot? Do people want to talk about this often? Only about the last 15 or 20 years, there seems to be a resurgence in this case. Uh, we went for years and nobody hardly ever spoke of it. And then all of a sudden, everybody wants to know because it's such a, I guess you want to say bizarre incident that happened here in Santa Cruz. But crazy. This, yeah, real, real crazy time. So you're a Vietnam veteran. How did you become a detective in Santa Cruz in the 70s? Well, it's kind of an interesting story because in those days, I was like in my early 20s and uh, I hadn't really decided what I want to do for a career. And then when I was in the army, I was, you know, trudging through the jungle over there. And I got a letter from my mother and she said that your brother has lost his senses and he wants to become a police officer. And she expected me to talk him out of it when I came home. So when I came home, naturally, I'm hanging out with my older brother and, you know, the influence is there. And I thought, OK, well, you know what? This seemed like it could be a pretty good career. And, you know, it could be some excitement. You know, it's a pretty stable job. So I'll, I'll go for it. And I did. That must have been a big change for you, coming from Vietnam and then becoming a detective. I mean, I suppose you saw things in Vietnam that could prepare you for what you'd inevitably face as a detective. But it's still really a different path. Yeah, I mean, there there were a lot of things that are they have in common, but I didn't go straight from Vietnam to being a detective. There's a process where you're hired as a deputy sheriff, and you spend a period of time working on the streets. And I did that for almost three years, and then I was uh, asked to go into the detective bureau, which I did. So that's how I got into that field. But bear in mind now that Santa Cruz Sheriff's Office in those days was relatively small, we had maybe 50 deputies, and out of the whole group, there were six detectives, two supervisors, and one person in charge, a lieutenant in charge. So there were only like four people doing the everyday detective work, and I was one of those people. And at the time, there probably wasn't a tremendous number of murderers that you had to deal with before these victims started popping up. No, there was hardly anything. I mean, for the most part, we would investigate things like burglaries or, or car thefts, things like that. Uh, some domestic stuff, batteries and robberies, but we didn't have any murders to speak of. For women, there was still the seemingly age-old risk posed by angry men. As Louita Spangler, former UCSC student, remembers. Prior to the murders, did Santa Cruz feel like a safe place to be a young woman in school? I mean, you, you can't be a woman in the United States and be unaware of dangers, okay? Um, I, I, I could say that it felt safer than dark alleys and things like that. But um, 
it's not like I was unaware of the fact that, uh, you know, especially with my my women's studies background and everything like that, that, uh, you know, I lived in a misogynistic culture and that there were plenty of men out there who really, really didn't like women. Um, I would experience them, for example, in grocery stores and things like that. Uh, Nothing super violent, but it was, you know, it's not like I was naive. Especially since when I, um, back in Palos Verdes, which is where I grew up, um, a good friend of mine had gotten very brutally beaten and raped um, before, before I moved up to Santa Cruz. And so I was acutely aware that this, this was an element of life in the United States. So it's not like I felt cozy and immune from the world out there, but I did feel overall safe, uh, partly because I tended to hang out with a lot of people. We've heard from cops, a former student, and an expert on the crimes, and I'm getting a real sense from their memories and expertise that Santa Cruz was just a melting pot of opposing cultures in the 1970s. It's incredibly unsettling to think that as late as April 1972, there were 21 individuals in and around Santa Cruz whose lives were about to be cruelly cut short by two of America's most notorious serial killers. Coming next, we turn to the darker side of life in 1970s California and explore how mental health policy might have enabled potential killers. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Picture yourself alone in the middle of nowhere, and there's somebody following you. He went on his way, we so thought, and then we went on ours. But in reality, he really followed us up there. On Deadly Nightmares, the true crime podcast from ID, listen to real stories of ordinary people stalked by serial killers and attackers. (laughs) Please, tell me we're not going to die. Listen to Deadly Nightmares on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Janice from Warner Brothers Discovery. If you're looking for a little extra peace of mind, you might want to check out Simply Safe. Simply Safe was kind enough to send me a home protection system to try out, and I couldn't believe how easy it was to set up. Not only that, I'm kind of a gear nerd, and I was really impressed by how clear the camera was. I also love the smart lock keyless entry because there are a lot of things to remember each day, and my keys aren't always on that list, okay? 
Not only that, Simply Safe offers a 60-day money-back guarantee, and U.S. News & World Report awarded them the best home security systems of 2024. Simply Safe has given me and many of our listeners real peace of mind, and I want you to have that too. Right now, get 20% off any new Simply Safe system with fast protect monitoring at simplysafe.com/mindofamonster. There's no safe like Simply Safe. Throughout the 1960s, around 80% of California state hospital patients are deinstitutionalized. And by 1967, when Ronald Reagan became governor, an act known as the Lanterman-Petrus Short Act stipulated that hospitalization would only be necessary in extreme cases. The policy changes mean that thousands of mentally vulnerable people are left without adequate care. And some of those with violent tendencies either play the system or simply fall through the cracks. Emerson Murray, author of Murder Capital of the World, knows more. Okay, so let's take an objective look at the situation in Santa Cruz in the 1970s. What made it a good climate? I mean, for serial killers, you had two of them. Yeah, yeah. So Santa Cruz was uh, pretty horrible in that way, that we had two serial killers at the same time. I would say that a lot of that has to do with the defunding of the mental uh, health care system in California. And, you know, that's always hotly debated. Uh, some people say it was Ronald Reagan. And, and um, so the mental health institutions were defunded um, in great numbers. And the two gentlemen we're talking about today, both of them went through the mental health system in California. And I would not say that Kemper was released early. He was released when he needed to be released uh, in 1965. But Herbert Mullen, most certainly, his family tried desperately to get him into the mental health system and into mental health facilities. And he would always be there a short time. And whether it was him being disruptive, as was the case in Santa Cruz at the Drug Abuse and Preventive Center or in other institutions, but he just never was given the opportunity, I would say, to stay as long as he needed to. You know, that's a complication we still face today, right? With mental health. And mental health is comorbid with drug use and the treatments. You go over here for drug treatment, you go over there for mental health treatment, and then of course there's incarceration because you're also probably committing crimes. Yeah, for sure, most certainly. And Mullen had all of the above, drug issues, mental health issues. Uh, he was committing crimes even, even beforehand. On the surface, Herbert Mullen's childhood seems fairly typical, but from my years of studying predatory killers, I know that there can be a link between violent behavior and early issues at home. Half a century ago, the psychiatrist Dr. Donald T. Lundy was looking into this very area. What you're about to hear are exclusive audio tapes recorded with Mullen's mother and father. These tapes have not been heard in almost 50 years, and for a psychologist like me, they are like gold dust. The tapes take us right into the family home and give us a unique window into the psyche of those closest to Mullen. Everything they say provides clues to the state of Mullen's mind, from the way they refer to their son, to the memories they recall, and even the tone of their voices. In this extract I'm about to play for you, Mullen's father describes a conversation with a teacher at his son's school. I gave him a good beating because he violated curfew. He came home 
not at regular city's curfew time, but an hour and a half later. And I said, I had spanked him good. And I said, this is an awful short period of time between spankings. And I said, and she interrupted me and she says, please don't beat him. But as his father explains, things took a turn for the worse when Mullen's best friend died in a car accident. There's one turning point here that we're probably missing, and that was that summer of, of 1965 when he lost his very best boyfriend. Dean Richardson was the classmate's name. Right. In that automobile accident up on the top of Graham Hill Road. It was summer of 65? Summer of August of 65. Mullen registered as a conscientious objector, which caused a huge issue within the family. Well, that was the first time we'd ever really had strong words in our house. We were trying to convince him that the best way would be through the medical corps or, you know, in some other dirt. But no, no, that was the first time he uh, definitely made up his mind that he was going to, he was against the system, he was against the army, he was against the war on religious grounds. And he'd, he'd been a very re deeply religious child, you know, older boy and everything like that in Catholic religion. So uh, that's what started all. But it wasn't until a family gathering that his mother and father understood that something was seriously wrong with their son. It wasn't just drugs, which were certainly a factor, but it was something else. Uh, we were all at the dinner table. And uh, we'd had a few eyeballs before, but, you know, I mean, not, nothing to excess, just a couple of drinks before dinner, maybe some wine at dinner. And I looked across, and he was just sitting there, and my uh, son-in-law was here, and he would pick up his fork, and I'd see her pick up his fork. You know, and we had a lot of chatter going on with the kids and everything else. And uh, then I'd see, um, and he was just kind of almost sitting there staring at him. And then Al would put something down, and her would put something down. And he was just imitating him constantly. And then he just kind of a blank stare look. Now there hadn't been any anything prior to that, that mm -hmm. uh, but then all of a sudden, we all became very conscious of it then. You know, because there was kind of a silence, and I guess maybe I had a strange look on my face because it, it alarmed me. Did anybody tell him to stop it or ask him what he was doing? Not until later. And then he uh, definitely went into a kind of a coma. And we couldn't even reach him. Couldn't talk to him. Oh, was he still, you mean, was he out on the floor or was he, he still sitting? He was sitting up, but just thinking as if in a stupor. And what, he just didn't move at all? Or did you sit there? Kind of with a silly grin on his face. Listening to these tapes, particularly the ones relating to the dinner party, is fascinating. Mullen is showing signs of mimicking behavior, zoning out, and then falling into a catatonic state. This is something you might recognize with a paranoid schizophrenic, and it must have been terribly uncomfortable and concerning for his family. There is an increased risk of violent behavior for those suffering paranoid schizophrenia. But it must be stressed that the disorder does not manifest in violence for the vast majority of those suffering from it. I get the real sense that the deeply disturbing issues within Mullen were being masked by his drug use and even the wider drug culture of the area. It's something that Terry Medina mentioned, this idea that there was an influx of hippies. 
And among lots of people getting high, I believe the true extent of Mullen's mental health issues and violent delusions were not adequately picked up on by the authorities. By the 1970s, Mullen is clearly unstable. So I want to know what else was going on in his life before he became a killer. I pick up again with Emerson Murray. Right before um, his murder spree began, he had moved back to his parents. He was doing a lot of LSD. He was hearing his parents' voices in his head saying, you're going to be a failure. You're going to be a disgrace to this family. And ultimately, what the issue was is he really believed in that the Aztecs were correct and that human sacrifice um, was the only way to protect society from uh, a, a great natural disaster, that a smaller disaster would prevent a greater disaster. And so that by taking human lives, he was going to prevent California from having a major earthquake and sliding into the ocean. Looking back at Ed Kemper's mental health history, psychiatrists had advised against Kemper returning to his mother's house. Kemper's sister, Alin, explained this further to Donald T. Lundy when he interviewed her in 1973. Again, this is an exclusive. This audio hasn't been heard in almost five decades. The quality isn't great, but for me, the authenticity makes it even more powerful. And what Alin reveals is damning. What reasons do you think your mother had, or she ever given any reasons for why she let him continue to live with her despite the fact that the psychiatrist had said she... Yeah, he was staying during that time because of his because he injured his arm at work. And he couldn't stay in the Alameda area. He couldn't pay his rent because he couldn't work. So he moved in with her. Into his Wasn't he getting disability? Something, I think he even told me that yeah. he, I think he was getting, getting some kind of unemployment. So I think he told me he used that money to buy some guns, but... So, I mean, did that seem... But he told her, you know, it wasn't until later on. She had a soft heart, you know. She also... Uh, I warned her again, when he was coming out of the Tascadero, she had all these visions of her, her son coming home, and she was buying clothes for him, you know, getting everything all set up, and, you know, thinking about what she was going to cook and stuff, and I was saying, don't do it. Don't get so emotionally involved in it because it's not going to be that way. And I said, well, this is not going to mean anything when we get out. And I said, it's going to be hard when we get out. And we have to make friends, just people that, you know, do normal, ordinary things, go to the beach and go to movies and this kind of thing. And it's just because I don't think you're going to go out and be in JC's all the time and do all, you know, that kind of stuff. <laughs> Listening back to this tape with Kemper's sister, Alin, is incredibly illuminating. From the outset, it's clear that she's nervous. She sometimes giggles, and her voice is hesitant and very quiet. But underneath the nerves, Alin demonstrates a high level of emotional intelligence. She knows exactly how her mother and Kemper will clash when he returns home. She warns against it, and probably placates Kemper too, but she's ignored. I also get the feeling that there's a lot about this mother-son relationship that Alin leaves unsaid. I'm back with Emerson Murray. So uh, Kemper was, you know, on the surface living a very normal life, you know, and he was going out and drinking. He would go drink at 
at, at bars around Santa Cruz. But underneath, he was sort of taking what he had learned in Atascadero about rape. And the, he said that there were hundreds of men in there that had been rapists. And he sort of learned that from there, lamenting about this, that they had left their victims alive. And that was a big problem. So behind the scenes and in his head, Kemper was clearly wrestling with himself about his sexuality. And he started picking up hitchhikers. And he picked up hundreds, if not thousands, of hitchhikers that he would drop off unharmed. Everything was fine. He tells stories about picking up somebody and driving them, I think, all the way up to Oregon or Washington and driving people down to Los Angeles. He just picked up hitchhikers and drove them around. But at the same time, he was slowly formulating through his plans of how to become a perfect killer. The end result is that we have a young man whose toxic relationship with his mother has been flagged by experts and family members, but ignored by authorities. They know he's demonstrated violent behavior. They know his home life is tense, yet they release him back into this toxic environment. An environment where it seems, at least from his sister's testimony, that his mother is looking to baby him. He is a 21-year-old, six-foot-nine man, but she treats him like a child. It seems he did eventually break away from her, moving out and getting a job on highway maintenance, but the effects of this toxic relationship were lasting. Kemper and Mullen are very different cases, but the end result is the same. By 1972, there are two ticking time bombs in Santa Cruz. May 1972, two Fresno State students and friends Anita Luchessa and Marianne Pesch, both 18, hitchhike a ride together from Berkeley, California. Concerned about safety, they travel as a pair, but they never arrived at their destination and became missing persons. Luida Spengler was studying at UCSC at the time. How aware were you of these disappearances? I was aware of them, but I wasn't alarmed because Women disappearing, getting killed, you know, that kind of thing happened. I mean, it happened all over the country. It wasn't a rarity. Uh, it still isn't. So I was aware that, that there had been a disappearance. I didn't instantly think, oh my gosh, you know, there's a serial killer going out there. I thought, well, I wonder what happened to them. Mickey Alufi was a detective at the Santa Cruz Sheriff's Office at the time. Were you personally involved in investigating those disappearances? No, you have to understand that there are several counties in the state of California, and each county has its own unique jurisdiction. So when those girls went missing, the missing person report was filed within the agency of their jurisdiction. So we were not aware of it. And that was Berkeley? Yeah, well, it, it may, may have been Berkeley or, or Alameda County. It may have been reported there as missing person but they were both from Fresno, so it may also have been reported down there. Terry Medina was also a detective at the Santa Cruz Sheriff's Office during the first days of Kemper and Mullen's killing sprees. Tell me about the investigation of these disappearances. <laughs> there wasn't much investigation. I, I remember the report coming in. We sent a couple of detectives up to the summit at the mountain uh, between Santa Clara County and Santa Cruz County. Then, three months after the girl's disappearance, in August 1972, 
A ghoulish discovery is made at Loma Prieta Mountain near Santa Cruz. A decapitated head. The remains were found on our side, and they were basically bones and a skull. So they'd been there for quite some time. What detectives did not know was that an 11-month killing spree had just begun. In the next episode, I continued to investigate why two such notorious serial killers were killing in the same place at the same time. And as the disappearances and murders escalate, 1970s law enforcement is pushed to breaking point. Mind of a Monster, the co-ed killer and Herbert Mullen is brought to you by Arrow Media for ID. Your host is Dr. Michelle Ward. You can follow our show wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love it if you could take a second to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.